From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. All right. Like, I feel like I'm back in the groove. I've been consuming some interesting libations. I can't wait to share them. But since I usually go last, I'm going to let Zach take the lead. Zach, what have you been up to recently? What have you been drinking? Well, you know, we are finally right in the heart of fresh hot beer season here I in knew Seattle. That's what it was <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's mid-September. I don't know what you want from me, uh, except for me to be drinking a lot of beer. Had a few different great expressions from uh, from uh, Bale Breaker, which is a very cool brewery that uh, has a tap room here in Seattle, but also the brewery itself is um, literally in the hop fields that they own. Uh, so very, uh, it's oh, hard to get cool. fresher than that with the hops. Um and also some uh, had a couple the other day from uh, Stoop Brewing. Um, again, kind of they're doing with the fresh hop thing, which is really fun. Is you're starting to see even more kind of diversification and or kind of specific applications. So I had one that was all Simcoe, uh, which is one of the earlier hop varieties to be harvested, which is why those fresh hop beers are out uh, a little earlier than some of the other hop varieties. Um, we've also seen some um, interesting, like you know, sort of single field uh, type fermentations with uh, the fresh hops. So yeah, really kind of fun stuff of course not purely just drinking beer um had some really interesting uh wine had a, a really nice bottle of uh kind of a Rhone blend from uh, here in washington from betts the Vesselet, which is a, a grenache maved sinso kind of concoction there it was very tasty of the day um and then i think the other highlight for me the really interesting like i i remain very intrigued by the combo of um, coffee and Amaro and the mm-hmm. Americano, which is a product made by a distillery here in Seattle, uh, Fast Penny Spirits. They make a, uh, they just started making this um, canned uh, like espresso and Amaro or coffee and Amaro combo. Um, that sounds good. It is good. It's dangerously good because like, a, like any of those things, you know, it has like, you're like, oh, is it more coffee flavored? Oh, wait, now I'm getting some of the Amaro. It's like, you know, it's a little sweet for sure. And like, it, yeah, they're, they're dangerous. They're not I mean, they're not super boozy, but they are like 15% ABV. So, you know, you, they're not a full-size can. I think they're like 200 milliliters. So, you know, definitely a reasonable amount to drink. But, uh, but you know, I tasted it on like a, a middle of the afternoon. It was like, oh, you know, a couple hours later, I was like, hey, I guess I did have something to drink. I'm, I'm feeling it a touch. So, I like yeah. it. <laughs> but you guys, you guys had you know, another tailgating adventure. And, you know, Joanna, as our resident football fanatic, you got to tell me yes, all about yeah. it. That's me. What's up? Yeah. Yeah, so we were in Atlanta this past weekend, but then in Athens, Georgia, and drank a lot again. Um, less tailgating drinking this time, for yeah. sure, for me. Yes. Um, not. It's a much more, uh, I would say, compared reserved. to Ann Arbor, it's, I would say it's covert drinking. Mm. Yeah. Like, people are, I mean, we. I saw more uh, boomers who were wasted, I feel like, in Athens than I did in Ann Arbor. Okay. I mean, I saw a boomer fall over. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> you saw, you know, that it was like he like fell over as he was walking to the game. And I was like, that's because he was hiding the bourbon. He was drinking all day at the tailgate. Yes. In the- boomer go boom. Yeah. Boomer go boom. Uh, Plastic cups and koozies. Yeah. And right? I mean boomer in an endearing way, everybody. I just mean in a person of a different generation that was drinking a lot. But everyone was drinking. But yeah. it was, yes, much more hiding it in plastic cups. Uh, you saw if it was if you were drinking out of a can, it was always almost always covered by a koozie. Mm-hmm. So it was just it was like very different. Like you didn't see people like in Ann Arbor, Zach. We saw like people with like full bars. Yeah, you know, wow. at their tailgates and like you could walk up to their bar and they had like tap handles with beers and they were all doing shots. You did not see that mm. at, at mm-hmm. in Athens. You did not see like uh, there was one tailgate where people had like a fireball machine in Ann Arbor. 
and everyone's just like taking shots of fireball the whole time. Like that was not happening in Athens. People were drinking. There was lots of there was definitely lots of booze, but it was all like hidden in coolers. People would walk to the cooler, pour themselves their drink or like pull, you know, the the bottle of whiskey from behind the table, dump it in their plastic cup with their ice and coke and then keep drinking, but it was it's interesting how culturally it's not out in the open like it is yeah. in Michigan. We also in Michigan, I feel like a lot of people were trying to get us to drink with them. Yes. And that didn't happen in Athens. No, we were at not all. offered a lot of like, hey, come drink with us <laughs> yeah. in the same way. Yeah. Huh. Really interesting. interesting. But like, anyway, back in Atlanta, we went to a restaurant called Gun Show and there I had a cocktail called Corn is my safe word. It was awesome. And uh, it was it was like a corn whiskey, grilled corn, charred corn cocktail. It was very good. It was frozen drink, actually. But oh, wow. I'm seeing a lot of corn on menus right now, corn cocktails on menus. I think it's, uh, it's a little bit of a trend lit happening. Trend. Yeah. It's a trend. Yeah. So that was one of the drinks from the weekend that I really liked. But we had lots more, Adam. Okay, fine. You go. You go. I mean, we also had the, like, the drink that Gun Show is. So I thought Gun Show was cool because like, the concept is... It's sort of like uh, dim sum, but it's instead southern a cuisine, southern kind new of? American oh. cuisine. And each chef uh, on the line comes and presents you their dish, and then you say, you know, you want two of them, three of them from mm-hmm. the table, and you share every dish. It was okay. cool. Um, and the other drink that they're sort of like famous for is their old fashioned, which toasted old fashioned. I just don't yeah. like an old fashioned. I okay. thought it was fine. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why I ordered it. It's because Ethan told me to. Um, <laughs> And I was just like, you know, I realized I just don't really like an old fashioned. It's not really your drink, it's huh? Not for I don't me. think I've ever seen you order that. No, not for me. So yeah. won't again need to remember. Um but yeah, we had two other I think really awesome experiences. One is we went to this bar called Margot where we all had a round of Monkey Forty Seven gin martinis, which was okay. awesome. We did. Uh and then and Monkey Forty Seven you know, it just felt a little splurgy. And then <laughs> and then the other thing is we went to what I think probably is the best restaurant in the southeast. Yeah. One of my probably my favorite restaurant in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gimbal House is really close though, so it's hard. But it's an amazing restaurant, and we had some incredible wine. Um, we had, it was a whole group of us, so therefore, like, it wasn't like Joanne and I drinking all these bottles, guys. But <laughs> um, we had Pierre Peters champagne mm-hmm. to start, which was delicious, and then we had a Premier Cru Chablis from Jean Paul and Benoit Droen. Which was that was amazing, amazing. Mm-hmm. Like I served that at my rehearsal dinner. Are you Aww. serious? Mm-hmm. I'd never had it before. Oh yeah, it was awesome, Zach. I know. Mm-hmm. Now I got to find it. <laughs> now I got to buy it. If you have a line on that and you just want to send it to me, let me know. <laughs> uh, it was really, really good. And then the other thing we had was a Magnum because there was a lot of us. That was our the other one we had of Jeffrey Chambertin, Close Prior Domaine. Armand Geoffroy Burgundy. Nice. Which was just sick. Cool. Um, so really, Don't forget what we had last. Oh, yeah. Then we had a 1997 Sauterne, so, mm-hmm. which was awesome as well. Um, but I also, well, I'm not a Sauterne guy. No, I, mean, not. I, I just said it was awesome as well. But then I turned to Joanna the next day. Um, we, were on, we were at the airport. And I was like, you know, thinking about last night. And I loved everything except... I just realized I don't think I like Sauternes. <laughs> I just but everybody did like it. It yeah. was special. But I kept thinking like I would have. I wished because the 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 beverage director was amazing. His Prin- name's Princeton. Princeton. This yeah. is at Miller Union, by the way. Is the restaurant? Did I not say the name? You didn't say it. No. Oh, Miller <laughs> Union, guys, go. I mean, I mean, it's one James Beard Awards, so it's not mm. like I'm like telling anyone anything they don't know. But um, it's an amazing restaurant, and Princeton 
is just an incredible psalm and I really appreciate all of his selections but this was the one case where I was like oh, I would have wanted like just an Amaro or something at the mm-hmm. end I wanted the bitter like the two it was it was it was like just sweet the way to end the meal and then I went back to the hotel room and I was like oh this is sweet like just all here <laughs> and I don't like it um not for me but for other people sure yeah for other people sure mm-hmm. so uh speaking of wine mm-hmm there was a little incident that happened about a month ago now on ye old wine, Instagram, Twitter, etc. that I thought was worthy of a larger discussion. And that was that I saw a bunch of people in the wine community all discussing an article that was that ran in the New York Times about the most anticipated bar openings of the fall. And the discussion they were having was, why are there no wine bars on this list? Now, I think there's a few reasons why. One being that the writer of the piece mostly writes about cocktail bars. But I do think it's an interesting conversation to have. And one of the conversations that was happening on social about this was, you know, what do wine bars need to do in order to be seen as an opening that is anticipated and to be part of the conversation of sort of trendy bars that you need to go to? And, you know... One of the things I've thought about a lot is that I just think that, oh, you know, we've talked about wine bars in the past and what they are and what makes a wine bar. But one of the things that I've seen recently is that, like, wine bars are so much more about the food program in almost every case that it's hard to lump them into the category of bar. Yeah. Right? It's not a bar. There's an expect. I mean, I feel very, I don't know about you guys, but, like, I feel very awkward going to bars with a food program and saying I'm not going to order food, right? Because when I'm asked, are you, will, you, will, you be having, will you be dining with us as well tonight? No, no, no. We're here for the drinks because bar is in your name. Right. Like, and I think that in a lot of these bars that were written about in this opening, they are truly bars. Like, maybe they have some food in case you want to, like, sop up a little bit of the alcohol as you are imbibing. But mm-hmm. they are cocktail bars. They are beer bars. Because there were beer bars on the list. Um, But a lot of the wine bars, especially in New York, that have opened over the past year, year and a half, they're really massive food programs. They're restaurants. They're restaurants with with an intense wine list. But, you know, even, you know, the new uh, Spanish wine bar in your neighborhood. Bar Vinasso. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, It's a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Like there's a food program. They're doing lots of food. Right. You, you, I don't think that mo- most people are like, hey, I'm going to go there to have a glass before I go out to dinner. Whereas a lot of the cocktail bars, you might go and have a cocktail before you go out to dinner or you might go and have a cocktail and then go home or have a cocktail after dinner. Right. A lot of these places are th- your activity is this wine bar. So I don't know. And then also I think that kind of just wine bars aren't seen currently as being like that much fun. But maybe that's me. Hmm. I like a wine bar, though. I just don't know that, like, they're ever going to be in the same conversation as, like, what people are looking for if they're looking for a cocktail or a beer bar. I want to add two pieces to this because I almost entirely agree. I think one of the challenges in this conversation is that there just are very few things you can do to be innovative with a wine bar these days. Like, if you think about a cocktail bar that opens, right, they can be innovative and attractive to people through a lot of different ways, right? They can focus on an unusual selection of spirits. They could focus on, you know, really kind of incredibly intense crafted cocktails. They could focus on, you know, they could have a whole lot of different, you know, the decor could be striking and all wine bars kind of look the same. 
um, or there's a couple of different aesthetics that they go for. It's either kind of like sleek and modern or like, you know, they're trying to look like they're in another country, um, which fine. Those are totally valid approaches. They're just not going to get a lot of attention. And fundamentally, when your business model is open bottle, pour liquid in glass, hand to guest, there's only so much you can do that's like, you're not going to come up with like super creative garnishes. You're not going to serve your wine in like, you know, a hollowed out pineapple, et cetera. Like those are not things that a wine bar can or even should do really. But they are things that create an element of, you know, excitement and dynamism in other kinds of bars. I think the last piece of it is, and and this is maybe a really like nitty gritty part, but I think wine bars are also really hard to write about. And part of the reason that wine programs in general are really hard to write about, especially in something like the New York Times, but even in, in most publications, is that like, unless you are just listing the wines that they have to offer, it's very hard to capture the whole point of the wine program, right? And, you know, a lot of people who write about, you know, cover the industry more broadly are not super technical wine professionals who have an incredibly vast knowledge of not just broad sort of wine styles, but like the specific producers and all that. And so the most you might get is like, oh, this is a natural wine bar or this wine bar, or you're essentially regurgitating the press release in one form or another, which fine, but I don't think is necessarily that exciting for readers. And so there's, there's not just the element of the bars themselves are perhaps less exciting, but I think they are very difficult to, yeah, to capture in writing or even, you know, in other forms of uh, other publications, because, you know, the thing that makes a great wine bar, and we have talked about this, is such an experiential thing. And it's about how you as the guest feel empowered to discover, to try, to taste, to explore. But that's a really hard thing to convey in writing, I think. And it's a hard thing to get right as a bar, too, because it, it requires a lot of precision and a lot of really well articulated and sort of, you know, conceived of goals on the part of the bar and the service staff and all that. And again, those are things that when you're there and you experience it, you feel it, but it can be really hard to kind of capture that in anything other than the actual lived experience. I agree with what both of you are saying, but I also disagree because I feel like it is on the writer to be able to do that, to be able to like go and have that experience and write something compelling about a place, regardless of the type of bar that it is, wine bar included. I think that the fact that this list didn't have any wine bars on it, yes, I understand these places have more extensive food programs than other bars and that likely people will be eating at them in a way that they wouldn't necessarily expect to eat at a, a cocktail bar. But I think that they can garner just as much you know, attention as and like excitement as a cocktail bar opening. Like there are some really, really popular trendy wine bars in New York right now that people fucking love and can't, you know, just like clamor to get into. And I feel like it was just like that would seem like a big omission to me from the list, even if even if people are going there to eat food, too. I agree with you that it is up to the writer. Yeah. However. Yeah. However. I also think that this is the classic case of most wine people, most wine entre- most most people who own wine bars thinking that they can they should only ever reach out to wine people for mm. coverage. So, we happen to know the writer who wrote this piece yes, and <laughs> I talked to him about the piece. Yes. And he said he is never ever pitched in his entire career by wine people. He hears from beer people all the time. He hears from spirits people all the time. He's probably the most respected spirits writer in the country at this point with more books than anyone else, et cetera. So you guys can figure out who he is. (laughs) And he writes for us. But 
wine people never reach out to him. Right. He's not on any lists. He doesn't get invited to any of these things. And again, I agree, like, he he could also go out. But the thing is that he's also busy covering his actual beat, which is cocktails and, you know, spirits and things like that. And he writes a lot about bars for the New York Times. And so if you're a smart bar owner or publicist, shouldn't you also make sure he gets pitched? I think so. Yeah. And I think that wine continues to have this dual problem where it's it continues to, to, to complain about the fact that it's losing share to spirits and to, you know, cocktail drinkers and say, it's not fair. It's not fair. And like, what are we doing wrong? But then continues to do things wrong, which is <laughs> not reach out to the people that actually cover these things and say things like like the dumb shit that gets said to us all the time, which is this one big PR firm in New York that specializes in wine, that continues to tell people that we are a spirits publication, mm-hmm. that we don't cover wine. So so it's it's not worth it for their clients to reach out to us. Well, guess what, idiots? We actually cover all of it, and we are much more reflective of where the culture is moving than just the specific wine publication. Now, this is like an old-school PR firm, et cetera, but like they are still very influential in the wine space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're telling these wine you know, companies, wine brands, and wine uh, purveyors to not take anything that doesn't solely cover wine seriously. I mean, sorry, sorry to only think to only take something that solely covers wine seriously, and that's the problem. So then, what happens? So these wine bars get covered by the same wine-only publications, wine newsletters, wine blogs, wine influencers. And I'm sorry, but those publications point are not talking to the broader culture. They're not. Well, it's just the same drinkers, right? Yeah. You're not going to expand the They're people that you're appealing to. right? And that's, I think, a really good point here, Adam. I, re- I really want to ask your opinion on this, or both of your opinions on this, because it actually helps con- contextualize this whole conversation to me, because I think that the, a lot of these wine bars that are opening almost view themselves, even if they they might be complaining about not being placed on this list, but if you were to truth serum them up and get their honest answer, like they would see themselves as being much more wanting to be covered in the vein of and by the restaurant critic, right? They want yeah. Pete Wells to write about them. They see themselves, yes. as you That's said, true. as a restaurant. They don't feel like they're in the same category with and and sort of competition with a cocktail bar, a beer bar, a, you know, a dive bar, et cetera. But if you are trying to be that kind of like, not just a place that people go to have dinner that happens to have a lot of wine, but you are in fact a place where people might go have a drink. And, you know, look, some great wine bars out there, they don't just have wine. Like they may be wine centric, but some of them have actually really cool cocktail programs yeah. or great beer selections or things like that. And yet I think there is that really weird myopia about like, instead of trying to capture an or talk to an audience that is interested in going out and drinking, which should be the people you want to talk to. You're like, Oh no, I want to capture the diner. But like, yeah, the diner is, you, you, I mean, especially in New York, but everywhere, there's a fuckload of competition for that. They're really hard to yep. do. And if you're and if you're trying to straddle a casual, low stakes kind of evening, but you're also trying to do food, you're trying to do a full menu, like it's both a difficult proposition to land and you are, again, you are running into competition where a lot of the people who might be interested in going out to have a nice meal are going to look at your program and be like, well, you know, food's all right, but it's not as special as what I want. And I'm not so motivated by the wine selection that I'm going to choose to sort of, you know, compromise on the food part. Whereas if you were to pitch yourself as a place to go have a really fun drinking experience and Hey, there's some food here too. You might stand a better chance. Yeah. And also what cocktail, a lot of cocktail bars and beer bars don't have are really good wine programs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think what's, what's the, 
what's the conflict that's happening here? I think we can boil this down. The conflict that's happening here is that you have the owners of said wine bars saying, I don't want to pitch the cocktail writer because, or just the ra- the random bar writer because only the wine writer will understand what I'm trying to do. Oh, well, that's sure. to Zach's point, right? right? It, like, it's, it's hard, right. right? I'm trying to do an Amphora-only based program. <laughs> And the regular writer won't understand, and I need the wine writer. And then they also say, because I think it's snobby, I don't know if I want the, you know, I I, want to complain that I don't have the generalist drinker. But then if I only, if I have a lot of generalist drinkers, they won't also get what I'm trying to do. And I don't want them. I just need the geeks. But there's not enough geeks to make money, so I don't know what I'm going to (laughs) do. And then in all of that, what they're missing is that the generalist drinks writer might just come and say, this is just a good time. I liked the decor. Right. The staff was really nice. I didn't understand the wine, but honestly, the staff explained it to me, and I had a great time, and you should come. And that place is the place that gets fucking packed and you can't get into. Right. Because that's the place that actually just regular people want to go drink and have a great time. And those are the places that wind up being successful and having longevity. And they're the wine bars that last year after year after year after year. And I think, again, that is the co- the internal conflict that continues to happen. Is like because there is – it is so hard, as Zach said, to stand out in the wine bar world – that the entrepreneur feels like they have to create a very specific theme. We've talked about this already in the podcast before, right? That then <clears throat> they convince themselves that the only people that will understand that theme are other wine people. Mm-hmm. And then they wind up having a bar that is not covered in a general's publication like the New York Times in the lifestyle section of the paper, but then are upset that that didn't happen. Yeah. And I think actually you make a really good point in there, Adam, which is that a good wine bar program should be accessible and enjoyable to to the kind of just average drinker. And in fact, if you are incapable of doing that, then honestly, your whole wine bar concept sucks. Yep. Because nowhere else in the world, really, does this idea exist. Even like I've been to a number of great acclaimed lauded wine bars in other parts of the world. And you are always struck by I am always struck by the broad swaths of different kinds of people who enjoy it. Now, granted, a lot of this is in Europe and, you you know, wine is a just more fundamental part of life in Europe than it is here. So even people who are not who not consider themselves wine aficionados or connoisseurs are people who enjoy drinking wine from time to time. But it's like you pop into one of these wine bars in Rome or Paris or wherever and like they're just all kinds of people there drinking wine and not every one of them is like, let's talk about the exact trellising system that this vineyard uses. Like <laughs> many of them just enjoy wine and they enjoy sometimes weird, strange wines and they enjoy wines that are very familiar too. And yet I think only kind of here do we see this sort of idea, this exact thing that you're describing, Adam, which is like, I am creating, I'm like creating a bar for one specific kind of drinker. And then I'm annoyed that that's the only kind of person who ever comes to my bar. And it's like, well, what are you doing? (laughs) Like, This isn't, they're just, yeah, there are not 10,000 of these people anywhere, even in New York. Well, right. It's like this idea that they need to stand out Mm -hmm. and then it ends up uh, being a little overwrought. And it's really hard to stand out. And as I was saying this before, like it's harder to stand out with wine because in the end, no bottle that you're offering almost exclusively is just your thing, right? Like, yeah, maybe you're the, maybe you have some weird, deep, 
collection of old bottles that you're pouring and that's a cool thing maybe but other than that it's all wine that is accessible you know there's another wine bar that has it there's retail shops that have it people can buy it online you know you're not making a custom cocktail that you've created the recipe of maybe you've developed a brand new technique etc and it is proprietary at least for a little while or can feel proprietary like you cannot do that with wine for better or for worse and so if that's your if that's the only thing you've got oh our, our selection is so distinctive and unique i mean it really isn't sorry I do think, too, that, like, the biggest thing that you see with a lot of bars that get covered, especially recently, is they, they they take one of two sort of tracks. Track one is, like, very serious, like, cocktail bar along the lines of, like, the Sasha Petrosky model, you know, or it's all about having a really good time. And that's, you know, Katana Kittens, Ubuntu, et cetera. All those places are, are all making cocktails that are pretty much variations on each on, on, on classics. So you can't make the argument as well that, like, they also aren't just serving things that you can get versions of elsewhere. They're just really concentrating on the experience and the atmosphere. And I think the majority of wine bars that you see are really only concentrating on one style of wine bar, which is very serious wine. Where, whereas, like I feel like ten years ago, there were some wine bars that were like, "It's about the party." Here's the Perones, where you know. And those were the places that were packed. Mm-hmm. And those were the places that everyone felt like they could go to. And that, you know, maybe it's that wine's gotten so expensive at this point that, you know, it feels inaccessible. Maybe it's that the the current generation of people that are that want to open these kinds of these places are only focused on more of the sort of, you know, uh, wines that are allocated and things like that. I don't know. But, like, what would slay is a wine bar that is just fun. And Can I add a note? Yes. Please stop using very expensive glassware in your wine bars. Save yeah. that shit for fine dining. Yeah, but don't use juice cups. No. No, no, no. Use a wine glass. But use a <laughs> wine glass that if someone breaks it, the staff doesn't wince. Like, yeah. <laughs> it drives me crazy. It's like, why are you using a $50 a stem glass? Like, this is not the place for that. Like, no. a wine bar should be a convivial. It should be the kind of place where, yeah, someone might pour you a, a pour of wine from eight feet above your head. Like, that's more fun. That is, again, how these places that are really great in a lot of other countries work in a lot of ways. And again, they serve you wine in like a functional but just barely wine glass. And no one is like, well, this is not good for the wine. Like, again, save that shit for your house or for fine dining or whatever. Exactly. It does not need to be the wine bar experience. I agree. <laughs> or open a restaurant instead. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Hit us up at podcastatvinepair.com and tell us how you feel. Uh, And if you think that, like, we are on the money here or not, and I will see you all back here on Friday. Talk to you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. 
I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.